Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. The sell side will change their price targets, their ratings, and their earnings estimates based on what's going on with the company afterwards. So what they really are, they are not predictive, telling you what's going to happen next. They're like the newspaper that will tell you what happened yesterday. And so you'll see their price target will actually follow the stock rather than lead it. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Debt, debt, and more debt. Who owes what to whom? How will it all end? Is it time for government to start cutting up their credit cards? Joining me to explore sovereign debt is friend of the podcast, Gary Broad from Deep Knowledge Investing. Hello, Gary. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me back. Great to be speaking with you again. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for coming back on. So there have been a few recent events covered in your latest newsletter, which we will link to in the episode notes and blog post. We newcomers to capital markets often hear the term sovereign debt. What does that mean? Yeah, it sounds like this really exotic, esoteric thing, super fancy. Oh, I don't know what that is. But for everyone listening to this, you do know what it is. It is government debt, right? So if you're Mm. in the United States, US Treasury bills. If you're Bank of England, they call them gilts, but it's just government debt. Sovereign just means the the wealth of a nation or in this case, the debt of a nation. And this is what's often referred to as printing money as well. I mean, governments have been doing this for a long time. This is the way they create money that goes into the economy, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Well, it's one of the ways they do it. Mm. In the United States, the Federal Reserve's done an enormous amount of quantitative easing, which is actually more currency creation. But the primary reason that governments all over the world are their currency supply is expanding. They're getting more and more currency units, more dollars, more Australian dollars, more Japanese yen, is simply because their Congress, their governments are spending more money than they take in, in taxes and other fees. And so the only way you can make that work is to take on additional debt. And the method by which that happens, adding debt to the system, increases the currency supply. Now, for many people, you think, okay, well, what's the big deal? The government creates currency. They do that all the time. Why do we care? Right? And the reason why you care is because when they do that, they are stealing from you. Right? And so let's give people a really clear explanation on why and how this works and why governments do it. Because what is being done is horrible. And the reason they get away with it is because people don't understand it. So let's imagine that, you know, we have this economy in the United States that's, you know, uh, roughly $30 trillion, maybe a little bit less than that, right? And we have a certain amount of currency. Typically, people look at a measure called M2. So now let's say, you know, we have a 
COVID-related situation and the government prints $6 trillion of currency. And then the next year, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, which is another trillion or two dollars. And then Congress is typically running budgets. They had been running budget deficits of about a trillion dollars a year. Now it's going to be $2 trillion a year. And all of a sudden, before you know it, they've created another $10 trillion of currency. You guys know the old expression, right? A trillion here, a trillion there. Eventually, you're talking about real money. Okay. So <laughs> it used to be about uh, billions, that one, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was the expression, right? So what happens is the government will create more and more currency units in the United States. It is literally tens of trillions of dollars. But that doesn't come with additional economic growth. They take that money that they've created and they spend it in ways that benefit them as politicians. They spread it out to their favored causes, their favored people, their favored charities, the groups that will vote for them, right? And you know, this is all over the world. It's a bipartisan problem or in European countries that have multiple political parties. It's an everybody problem, right? It's not a, oh, the evil guys on the left or the dumb guys on the right. All politicians want to stay in office. And one of the best ways to do that is to spread money around. But the problem is they're creating the money out of thin air and overspending. And they're overspending in a way that doesn't add value to people's lives. And so when they do that, the value of the currency that you own, that you save in, that you get paid in, gets debased. Debased, again, it's a fancy word for saying loses value. Okay. So for anyone listening to this, when you've gone to the grocery store and your grocery bill is much higher, when you've tried to hire a repairman or buy uh, an appliance and those expenses are much, much higher, this is what we're talking about. When you go to fill your car with gas or pay your electric bill and you see it's much higher, right? This is why it's happening. And the key issue here is the reason the government likes doing this is because it's stealth stealing, right? And I, that's, that's my term for it. So think about the old traditional process, right? The a government official will say, I want us to spend a trillion dollars on item X or issue Y or cause Z, something that, it, and we think it's worthwhile. And, but I'm letting you know, my fellow citizens, we're going to have to tax you a trillion dollars to pay for it. And then, you know, that politician has to run for office and people will either say, well, this is fantastic. This trillion dollar program that this politician created is great and created value for us and our lives are better because of it. Or alternatively say, are you kidding me? A trillion dollars for this completely worthless nothing, right? We're going to vote him out of office. And the old system Politicians had to be responsible for the legislation that they supported and run for office based on that. Now what they do is they just print more currency, spend on whatever they want, and it never gets in front of the voter. There's no opportunity to vote them out. And that's just simply something that doesn't happen. And so I don't know what you guys did in Australia, but in the United States, when we had the lockdowns for COVID, the government sent out stimulus checks. And by the way, they were still sending out these stimulus checks long after the emergency period of COVID was over, right? When the economy was opening up, people were going back to work. People, everybody was done sheltering at home. And they're still sending out these stimulus payments, which got uh, you know, affectionately referred to as stimmies. And so you know, most people thought, oh my God, this is fantastic. I have free money. 
free money. Phil, who doesn't love free money? Phil, do you love free money? Oh, right? It's the best thing in the world. <laughs> it's the best. Right? Everybody listening Except to this. Guys like, like us, guys like us expect them in dividends rather than from the government, <laughs> presumably. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And if you're listening to this, you love free money, right? Put your hand up. Who doesn't love free money? Well, here's what really happened. So let's say, for example, one of the stimulus checks they sent out, it might have been for a thousand US dollars. So you get this thousand dollars and boy, that is terrific, right? But remember, they created $6 trillion of additional currency to fund the stimmies, right? And so what you had was $6 trillion of currency flooding into a system at the same time that people were prevented from working. So you had an increase in the money supply and a decrease in goods and services available. Well, the only thing that can happen is your prices go up. And so people love the free money stimmies, but now let's say you have a situation where your grocery bill goes up by 50 bucks and your rent goes up by 50 bucks and what it costs you to fill your car is up another $20, $30 a month. And this other thing is, so maybe your expenses go up by a hundred or $200 a month and you will have worked through your free money in the course of a year, maybe a little bit less, but now here's what happens. The following year, you will end up with a permanently higher base of your expenses. Your rent will be higher. Your cost to hire somebody to help you will be higher. Your gas and electric bills are going to be higher. Your food bills. Anybody who's been in a grocery store knows that the CPI in the United States, it was showing uh, food prices up like 5 6%, right? My only conclusion is that these are people who haven't set foot in a supermarket in the last two years. That number is clearly inaccurate, right? And so- Everybody got excited for free money, but here's the truth. If you received those stimulus payments, you are paying for your stimmies, right? Your stimmies will be paid for by you for the rest of your life in permanently higher prices, but government officials got to spend all of this money that they created diluting the value of what you own. So all of this, it is an insidious way that the government stealth steals from citizens and avoids having to run for office on the basis of making your lives harder and worse, right? The free money is great, but the bill comes later. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Investing in shares can be fun, but the paperwork isn't. My investing's been transformed since using ShareSite, the best portfolio tracking tool for investing. My portfolios are on ShareSite, and whenever I buy or sell, the trades are automatically recorded. I can see the dividends I'm receiving, and it helps me to work out my asset allocation. ShareSite are extending a special offer to listeners of this podcast, four months free on an annual premium plan. There's a seven-day free trial where you can experience the full power of ShareSite portfolio management. Go to ShareSite.com slash sharesforbeginners and sign up now for a free trial before taking advantage of four free months. That's ShareSite.com slash sharesforbeginners.
So why is inflation and sovereign debt so important to equity markets? So the reason is Sorry, I'll just because, I'll just jump in here because this yeah. yeah, the stock market seems to be going fine. It doesn't seem to be a problem at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it really that that itself is remarkable. So you what you're really asking are are two questions, right? The first question is why does this stuff matter? And the second question is if it matters, why is the market not responding to it? Right? And so let, let's take these in order. The reason this matters is here's the chain of events. The government creates excess currency units, right? More dollars, more Australian dollars, more yen, more British pounds. When that happens, we end up with inflation for the reasons that we just talked about and explained. When inflation gets high, the only tool that central bankers have to deal with it is to raise interest rates. And when you raise interest rates, what it does is reduce the value of future payments. Now, Phil, I know there's nobody better at explaining the basics of investing to a learning audience than you, than stocks for beginners, shares for beginners. Everything you're doing is great at financial education. And that's fantastic. So when you guys value a stock, what you're effectively doing is saying this company is going to produce a stream of earnings and cash flow in the future, hopefully a growing one, maybe not, right? And we say, okay, well, the present value of those future earnings flows, those future cash flows is worth a certain amount. Well, if we increase interest rates, then you're discounting at a faster rate. That's just simply the math on it. And the payments that you would get in five years or 10 years will be worth less at a higher discount rate than a lower discount rate. And that's why currency printing and inflation end up affecting the stock market. Does that make sense? Because when we're looking at a company, we're looking at the the amount of risk that we're willing to take on as investors, as opposed to the risk-free rate. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's exactly right. Basically, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. But now also think about it in terms of incentives, right? So let's use the extreme situation we had just a few years ago when sovereign debt interest rates were at or around zero. And in some places like Europe and Japan, there was a point where interest rates were negative, which is itself crazy. There were trillions and trillions of dollars worth of negative yielding sovereign debt. Okay. So Phil, let's say I say to you, all right, well, you can buy government bonds. And at the end of it, you know, maybe we'll give you your money back. Maybe we'll give you a little bit less, but you're going to have a negative rate of return, particularly regarding in, uh, against inflation. In that scenario, you're very, very likely to say, okay, well, I'm not doing that. But you know, because the discount rate is very low, the stock market is going crazy. The real estate market is up, right? I'm going to take on more risk and buy stocks and buy real estate leveraged. And the people who are even more adventurous, they're buying you know, no revenue venture capital firms, anything to avoid not getting paid. But now, you know, look at what happened to U.S. banks when interest rates hit 5%, right? All of a sudden, those savings accounts or certificates of deposit or U.S. treasuries, you could lock in 4 or 5%. And now people are starting to say, wait a minute, that 4 or 5%, that actually sounds pretty good. And they started to pull risk money out of the stock market and put it into cash, savings accounts, certificates of deposit, government debt, 
right? And so people respond to incentives. And that's another way that these factors that we're discussing act as levers to push money back and forth between the stock market and the bond market, between cash and savings and investing. And people's appetite for risk changes depending on the risk-free rate, which is a much more complicated way of explaining what you basically summarized in one sentence. And so we as individuals have credit ratings. We you know, go to the bank and they sort of look up some sort of chart in the background that says what kind of credit risk we are. Now, recently, the United States the, or the U- US treasuries have been downgraded. They're not quite as safe as they once were. Who did this kind of rating and where does this come from and what does it mean? Yeah, that is a great question, Phil. So first of all, the ratings agency that did it was Fitch. There are three main rating agencies. Moody's had actually downgraded the US, I want to say 2011, something like that. Now, they were a little bit delicate in the way that they talked about it, right? They talked about a lack of political cooperation, reduced controls. They basically said, hey, you know, because you guys were fighting about the debt ceiling, we hit the debt ceiling and, you know, there's a debate about that. You know, we're no longer as comfortable. That, by the way, is absolute total nonsense. That is not why the decision was made, nor is that irrelevant. So for everybody who had spent six months earlier this year, and the the issue got resolved, panicking over, oh my God, we're going to, you know, we're going to default. The US is going to default. We're going to hit the debt ceiling. That was all, uh, it was a show. That was all a completely irrelevant show. The US has hit the debt ceiling dozens and dozens of times in its history. We will again. There is always an agreement. It's an arbitrary figure, really, isn't it? It's not tethered to any sense. It's just like, okay, we've got the ceiling. We're going to increase it to this amount, and then we'll negotiate again sometime in the future. Yes, that's true. Although the fact that it's an arbitrary figure doesn't mean that it's not a real figure, right? The US oh, can't go of, over, of course, right? of course, yeah. Now, because I will tell you, everything, all government statistics are lies. They do not provide information. They advance a particular narrative. Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury here in the US, used what's called extraordinary measures to keep us under the debt ceiling, right? And it's all lies and it's all fiction. The truth is the US was over the debt ceiling for about six months. And the way they manage this stuff is they'll do things like they'll pull cash out of pension plans and just say, hey, don't worry, pension plans, we'll get this resolved and then we'll pay you back. And they pretend that it's not extra debt. They'll do other things like not pay certain bills and pretend, oh, well, you know, we haven't paid this bill. We, don't, we haven't taken on debt for it. And the proof that my way of looking at this is correct and the way the government is looking at this is a lie is you know, within a couple of weeks after resolving the debt ceiling issue, the debt of the United States increased by approximately a trillion dollars. So you're telling me we're overspending by about a trillion dollars a year and we got about a trillion dollars in two or three weeks. That was a little bit less than that. But the point is they had spent six months accruing expenses and pulling cash out of places, right? They're pulling cash out of the mattress that they intended and had to replace, right? So we were way over the debt ceiling limit. But the other thing is people were acting like, oh, well, you know, if you get past the deadline, the US is going to default. That is also 100% weapons grade balonium. It's simply not true. 
right? The thing that the United States would have had to do in that highly unlikely scenario is pay interest on the debt that avoids a default. And so what we could have done is shut down a whole bunch of government agencies, right? And stop spending money on a whole bunch of other stuff and stayed under the limit. The other option, which everybody pretended wasn't an option and politically it wasn't a viable one. But Phil, if you have a limit, you were talking about us as individuals having a credit rating. So if your credit card company says your limit is 20,000 Australian dollars, I'm making up a number, right? And you are at, you know, you're basically at 20,000 Australian dollars on your credit card, right? You also have the option instead of saying, well, I need my credit limit extended to 30,000 Australian dollars, you have the option to not overspend. You have the option to not spend more than you take in. And somehow that option to live within your means got completely deleted from the conversation, right? I mean, this is the whole thing is it's drama. Try, try talking to your bank in those terms. <laughs> yes, ex- exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I need this money, you know. I've You're got, right. I've got uh, spending issues that um, I haven't dealt with yet. What do you expect us to do, right? <laughs> what, right. what do you expect? Not of go course. out to, for dinner five nights a week. <laughs> right. We, had, we have to spend this money. We can't stop. The economy will die if we stop, right? Mm. So this is the whole thing is basically set up as a drama. And my advice to anybody listening to this is the next time we have one of these, you know, horrible, terrible, frightening moments where everybody's spending six months panicking, oh my God, is the United States going to default? Is the global economy going to fall off a cliff? My advice to you is view the whole thing as a reality TV show with designated villains and designated heroes. Just view it like you would view professional wrestling, right? Very entertaining, but nothing of value or meaning is actually happening here. Now, let me cut to the question that you implied but didn't directly ask, which is, can the United States default, right? That's really at the end of it. That's right. And yeah. I mean, it is supposed to be the, the safest haven on the planet, US Treasury. Yeah. And the answer is, it is, and it is, and it isn't right? So it is because the government can't default. And here's the reason. It's because the US government can print more dollars, right? And so how can we default? Like if we fall $10 trillion short on our debt obligations, the treasury, they're like, okay, they go to the Federal Reserve. Here, here's $10 trillion that we just printed, right? We have control over the currency that our debt is denominated in. So answer one, right? We can't default. So it's not a problem. Answer two is when you're saying, is the dollar the safest option? The dollar is, as of today, by far the safest fiat currency option. We're excluding hard money, things like gold or Bitcoin from that. But in terms of fiat currency, which is a fancy way of saying a government issued currency, that isn't backed by anything. In the United States, the dollar is backed by faith and credit. And so you have that. And so the reason that the dollar is right now the safest fiat currency on the planet is because as poorly as the United States manages its finances, the US with a gigantic economy actually does a better job with this stuff than other large countries. And so the financial problems that we have here 
are dwarfed by the problems that they have in Japan, that they have in the EU. You know, the Bank of England last year came inches away from having a gigantic pension problem. They almost defaulted on their public sector pensions, right? I mean, these are huge problems. And so the expression that we'd use is the dollar is the best house in a bad neighborhood, right? Everybody's doing a bad job. We're just doing it slightly less worse than others are. And that's why as of today, the dollar remains the world's reserve currency, but you know, losing share and not handling it particularly well. But you know, the question was, is this, you know, can the US default? Is this a problem? And I said, you know, we're good, we're good, we're not good. And here's the scenario where we're not good. So the real liabilities of the United States are much larger than people think it is. We've got now $32 trillion of official on balance sheet debt by the end of the next election, when the next president takes office in January of 25 or is inaugurated, depending on who it is, debt will be in the neighborhood of $35 trillion. This is an unfathomable amount, but that's not the real issue. The real issue is there's another $200 trillion of off balance sheet liabilities, pensions, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, all kinds of social spending and obligations that we've taken on and have not reserved for. And so you add up this 200 some trillion dollars of off balance sheet liabilities, add to that another $35 trillion of on balance sheet. We're closing in on $250 trillion. That is a quarter of a quadrillion dollars. That's a word that you don't normally hear outside of Zimbabwe. Inflation, you know, anytime yeah. soon, you know, it'll be real Ex- money again. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, before when I told all of you the US can't default, it's true. Our obligations are in dollars. We can print dollars and ensure that we pay those obligations, but just take a minute and think. Earlier in this discussion, we were talking about what happens when a central bank prints trillions of dollars of currency without associated economic benefit, right? This is money that's handed out. These are basically stimmies, right? It's just instead of individual checks being sent to individual people, they're just stimmies for the whole economy. And so what we will end up doing, I believe, it will be a stealth default where the government will just print so much currency that the United States will pay its obligations, but it will do so in dollars with much less value, very little value. And so, you know, imagine being in a situation where you're a pensioner, you get your social security check, I'm making this up, let's say it's 300 US, uh, sorry, 3000 US dollars. And you say, okay, well, great. Now I can go buy groceries for the week and now I'm done. And what do you do about things like rent or having a car or, you know, any of the basics of living, maybe, you know, medical care, anything that you'd have to spend money on. If you have to spend your whole check on a week's worth of groceries, that's going to make things really tough for people. And so, you know, the US right now is living in this world. Actually, it's not just the US, right? The entire Keynesian fiat system, which is most large economies right now, are living in this make believe world of, you know, unlimited stimmies. But the bill will come due, and the way the bill will be paid is in massive amounts of currency debasement for the reasons that we've discussed in this conversation. So let's get back to the S&P 500, which is near and dear to all of our hearts. In the newsletter, you have a section where you, 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 you suspect that company earnings aren't as good as they possibly appear to be in the latest quarterly reports. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's definitely true. So mm. here, here's the way, and this is where it really does help to be a professional investor who's been doing this for decades, because you really get a sense of how the system works. And there is a game being played here. First, the most important thing to convey, Phil, is that the sell side, right? The, the research reports that you would see from the big Wall Street firms, those reports are not designed to help you as an investor. In fact, they don't care what your investment returns are, not even a little bit. Those reports that they produce, the ratings that they have, the stock price targets are all designed to maintain a close relationship with the companies that they cover and use to then sell investment banking services. So the idea is, okay, well, we have a relationship with company XYZ and you know we're going to write up all kinds of nice reports telling everyone your business is great and there's lots of growth and you know earnings next year are going to be terrific and we've got a buy rating and a super buy rating and a very high price target right all well the other side of that is behind the scenes they're saying listen when you guys do a secondary offering we want to manage that you do a stock buyback we want it to run through our trading desk you have to issue debt. We want that through here. You want to buy another company. Our M&A department will be in to take care of that, right? And so basically- So just before you go on, Gary, I just want to yeah. emphasize this point for listeners because a lot of people put a lot of stock, so to speak, in these kind of analysis. And there are incentives here that are not designed to help you as an investor. They're there to help brokers and investment banks continue their relationships with their clients in the corporate world. Let's just emphasize that point just for a moment and dwell on it. Yeah, Phil, that is, that's perfectly expressed. You're 100% right. And now for your listeners, some of whom have to be thinking, wait, so now what, what do we do? What, what do we do with this? We've been reading this research. And here's my advice to you. It doesn't mean that everything printed in those reports is a lie or that it's wrong, or that they don't know what's happening with the business. My advice to you is you view it the same way you would view marketing materials, right? You go to buy a new car and they're not going to tell you, well, this car has a high failure rate. We've got problems with the airbags. We've got four recalls on it. You know, they'll tell you the air conditioning system works well and it rides really well. It's good gas mileage and the, you know, 500 horsepower engine and great pickup. Like all of that may be true, just view it, instead of viewing it as investment advice, view it as marketing materials, right? And could you learn something about the company that's true? Yeah, you could, possibly, but you just need to be very skeptical and realize that you are being marketed to in a way where your needs and your financial outcome is not part of the calculation. Now, my response to all this is I simply don't read any sell-side research at all. Right. I go to primary sources. I spend all day on the phone talking to people. I read company filings. I talk to people at the companies and I do read independent research. My response to this is to simply never read any sell side research because it's simply it's marketing materials. It's a glossy it brochure. Yeah. It doesn't help anyone make money. It's not designed to help you make money. And for anyone doubting this for a minute, go take a look and realize that something like 95% of the ratings are buy ratings and 2% are hold and 3% are sells. And really you think there are like 15 companies in the S&P 500 that you'd sell that are, you know, that are below average. You're kidding me, right? This is ridiculous. The outcomes that we get here are proof that the whole process is biased. 
And that's a really important thing. And so here's the game. The game is the sell-side analysts, and I use that word analyst lightly. I, I really just want to call them marketers, but that'll be confusing, right? So the sell-side analyst marketers, they present their work as being predictive. They're saying, I've got a buy rating on this. I've got a $50 price target on a $25 stock. You will make a lot of money on this. Okay. But that's not really what it is. The sell-side will change their price targets their ratings, and their earnings estimates based on what's going on with the company afterwards. So what they really are, they are not predictive telling you what's going to happen next. They're like the newspaper that will tell you what happened yesterday. And if the company had a bad result, then they lower their ratings or then they lower their price target or their earnings estimates. They do that after the fact, not before. And so you'll see their price target will actually follow the stock rather than lead it, right? So the whole thing, it's this giant game. And so coming back to Phil's original question, which is why am I suspicious of some of these company earnings? Here's what happens. The companies talk to the analysts at the sell-side firms and they give them guidance. And guidance is a very gentle way of saying they tell them what their earnings are going to be. Now, officially, they can't give them a number, but what they'll do is, you know, it's sort of that wink and nod game. You know, the analyst will send over their model and say, hey, what do you think? And the company will say, well, you know, uh, it looks good, but, uh, you know, maybe uh, the earnings uh, number is a little high. We think maybe the problem is you're assuming your growth rate is like a little off by maybe 1%. And, you know, if you just adjust the expenses by a little bit, because we're not really sure. They tell this whole story. They're very carefully make sure they don't violate SEC regulations, but they keep having these iterative conversations until the company says, yeah, we're comfortable with the model, right? So they've never said, we want revenue of X and earnings of Y and margins of Z, they just keep you know, iterating until they're comfortable with it, right? And so what that does is that allows the companies to lower the bar. And we put up a chart in a recent deep knowledge investing piece showing what's happened to earnings estimates for the S&P 500 for 2023. And a year ago, when I started saying to people, wait a minute, these numbers are way too high, they have to come down. The estimate for the S&P 500 for their earnings was right around $250. Now, depending on which source you look at, it's somewhere in the 215 to 217 range. That is a massive reduction. Like, I want all of you to think about what you would do if you bought a company where you thought the earnings were going to be 250 and, it, and a year later, it's like, yeah, it's really more like 215. That's a big change, right? And now what we see, you know, everybody who follows the market what have we seen for the last month? Oh, company earnings are great. 85% of companies in the index beat their, you know, the benchmark. They beat their- the targets their, and everything. Yeah, they beat yeah. the targets, right. Uh, my question for you, did they really? Because what these companies were able to do is as they realized that business wasn't as good as they thought it was, it wasn't as good as they hoped it was, they lowered the bar again and again and again. And I'm going to keep repeating this. A slide from 250 to 215 that is a massive change in quality of earnings. It's a massive change in your growth rate. It's a negative growth rate. But the narrative that we're all being fed right now is earnings are great. Companies are beating. 
everything's terrific. And, you know, it's simply these companies were able to lower the bar for themselves. And the analysts played along with the game because they want to stay in the good graces of the company so that they can sell them investment banking services. That's how all of this ties together. And so you're all being told company earnings are terrific. They're beating the bar. Yeah, but they were able to set the bar and then lower it and lower it and lower it. And they were never punished for it. And so, you know, like, do I think the earnings are a lie? No, but I think the narrative is inaccurate and people are going to get hurt on it. So you also mentioned the sudden announcement of the yellow bankruptcy. Who are yellow and what was this bankruptcy all about? Yeah, this was one of the most fascinating situations I've ever seen in my life. Yellow Corp was a less than truckload carrier. Again, sounds really fancy, but it's really simple. Imagine for a minute that you're Walmart or Costco and you send, if you're that big, you're sending full truckloads from distribution center or to stores to ports. Now let's imagine that you have something really big in your home that you want to ship. Now, maybe it's a pinball machine or a piece of furniture and you want to send it somewhere. That is not a full truckload. And so you will pay for part of a truckload. It's a less than truckload carrier. They were the third largest company of that kind in the United States, literally one of the largest shipping companies in the world. And, and, um, and listed as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What, what's their code again? It's um, Y-E-L-L. Yeah. Yeah. The company is in the process of declaring bankruptcy. So what happened was they got into a huge fight with their union. In this case, it was the Teamsters. And the company, I've never seen this before, company management came out with these really incredible acerbic comments about Teamsters management and how they crashed the company. And this is actually true, but not the full story. So here's the part that's true. The Teamsters did go to management and they said, hey, we want to renegotiate this contract. We want to get paid more. And as that happens, basically, we want more. And so management tried to negotiate with them and the Teamsters dug in. And then the Teamsters made an error. They basically went out in public and they said, we're about to go on strike. And here's why that's an error. The reason it's an error is because now let's imagine you are a big shipper. The last thing you want is to have truckloads of your merchandise stuck in the middle of the country or stuck at a port somewhere where you can't touch it. No one else will touch it because it's a union strike and your driver just walked off the job and nothing gets delivered and you have all of this inventory sitting and you can't go get it. You can't find it. You can't touch it. You're really in trouble. So when the Teamsters made that announcement, all of Yellow's customers immediately said, okay, well, we're happy to do business with you guys in the future, but for right now, we're moving our business to UPS, to FedEx, to anywhere else, right? And they immediately stopped all business to Yellow. At that point, cash flow to the company imploded and the company said, okay, well, we have to declare bankruptcy. And more than 20,000 Teamsters employees promptly lost their jobs. That's why I'm saying this was a strategic error on the part of Teamsters management, their union leaders, because the way they handled this caused tens of thousands of their people to lose their jobs. Now, one of the really- That's, that's such a miscalculation, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's horrible. 
It is absolutely horrendous. And so one of the great things about doing what I do in public, where I talk in public about ideas, I write in public, I you know put things on Twitter, is people will come to me with information. And one of Deep Knowledge Investing subscribers, really interesting man named Paul, actually has a history in the trucking business. And he started messaging me about this. And you know he, he did confirm that this was indeed an issue and that the Teamsters had been a huge problem and companies like UPS had managed to have much better relations with their unions. And to that end, much of what happened is the Teamsters' fault and was a calculation error. But here's what Paul relayed to me, that the reason that the Teamsters had been so adamant about not giving in, not giving any concessions, not negotiating in what we would consider to be good faith is because there had been a prior issue about cuts to the pension plan. And so yellow management had led them to believe that there would be payments to the pension plan. If you're a union representative, you really care about stuff like that. Post-employment benefits, that's a huge part of their compensation. And so they felt like management wasn't trustworthy. Right. And so that part didn't get reported in the press. And yeah, again, one of the advantages of doing what I do is people will contact me and say, this is what's going on. And I had people in the shipping industry telling me, yeah, there's a reason why the Teamsters weren't willing to extend any trust to management here. They felt like management had been dishonest and not, you know, hadn't represented themselves well and hadn't treated employees well. And they got to the point where they said, you know what? We're not going to help you. We're not going to make any concessions. Now, one of the things that we did at Deep Knowledge Investing was we ran the numbers and we looked at employee costs as a percentage of revenue because management was saying, hey, we can't afford these guys. And what we found is that the recent employee costs as a percentage of revenue were not above where they were historically. So this really was an unnecessary situation where Bad behavior by management led to horrendous behavior and strategic errors by union leaders, and 20,000 people are out of a job. And it just ended up being a disaster for everybody, including the shareholders. Like, this really was a situation where there is massive amounts of blame to go around for everybody and everywhere. And, you know, people always like to say, you know, your parents, what do they always tell you? Well, if you're fighting with someone else, the truth is somewhere in the middle. My parents love to say that. But occasionally in the real world, what you find out is that everybody involved might have acted badly. The truth might not be in the middle. The truth might be that everyone involved contributed to a massive problem for everybody. And I have never seen a situation, though, where management came out and was so clear and acerbic in talking about the relationships with the unions. Normally, they're very careful about that. For me, the takeaway from that story is that you have one of your subscribers who has got experience in this area coming to you with information. And, you know, some would say that's insider information, but it's not real. I mean, that's not insider information, nothing like what would be considered something that you would be able to trade and make money on. But yeah, just for clarity, to- it's, it's, it's not insider it's information. It's not insider information. No, no, no. It Sorry, I, I shouldn't have even brought that up. Yeah, but, no. Yeah. It, what um, it is, but- is a really good industry check. That's right. And that's where you get so many insights from people who are involved in the industry and then have the added benefit of being investors that you've got a relationship with who see something that is worth noting that is, as you say, not in the news. 
Yeah, there are huge advantages to being able to source great information and having people come to you with great information who know these industries inside and out. And let's just take a second and talk about what is and isn't illegal here. So for example, if some of you are interested in the shipping business, for you to talk to your FedEx driver and say, hey, how's business? Are you more or less busy? Are they hiring drivers or letting drivers go? Are you seeing more routes or fewer routes? That is 100% legal, right? If you have a friend who's a driver or working on, you know, on the floor and wondering, are you more or less busy than you were a year ago? That's totally valid. You can do that. What you can't you can, do- you can, go and stand, you can go and stand outside a store, a store that's yeah. listed on the market and see, are they busy or are they not busy? I mean, this yeah, is just very, very you can count cars in the parking lot. Yeah, mm, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. You can ask the cashier, how's business, right? These are all legal ways to gain information. And there are even companies that have satellite photos. They'll count the cars in the parking lot and report whether it's up or down versus the prior month. The thing that you can't do, is you can't call the company's CFO, their accountants, and say, hey, you know, uh, people are expecting earnings to be X next quarter. Are you guys going to beat the number or not? You can't have that conversation. That would be inside information. And my advice to any of you, should you ever find yourself with material non-public information, you know something from a company insider that has not been publicly released, I have two pieces of advice for you. Number one, do not trade the stock. Don't trade options in the stock. Do not put capital at risk. And piece of advice number two, keep your mouth shut. Do not pass that on. Don't put it on Twitter. Don't discuss it with people. Don't tell your friends to invest. You're not being clever. You're not going to get away with it. The SEC is remarkably effective at this kind of enforcement. And I strongly recommend that everybody stays within the guidelines on that. And I'll just remind you, it is not illegal to possess material non-public information. It's illegal to disseminate that information and it's illegal to trade on it. So if somebody tells you something that you shouldn't know, keep your mouth shut and don't trade the stock, don't trade the options, don't tell people about it. And if you do that, you will be complying with both the letter and the spirit of the law. So Gary, tell us about deep knowledge investing and the very generous um, coupon code that you're offering listeners to this podcast. Thanks, Phil. I appreciate it. So I am a 30 plus year hedge fund veteran. I've been running deep knowledge investing for three and a half Turn, years now. Sorry, you missed out, turned to the good side. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. And what we do is we help people like you, like your listeners, registered investment advisors, hedge funds, uh, or just individuals with you know a few tens of thousands of dollars in an E-Trade account or a Schwab account or Robinhood account. We help people get better returns. We don't recommend a ton of stocks. It, this is not the pick of the week. We're not doing short-term stuff. It's long-term investing. And we have an insanely high hit rate. Basically, everything that we've done since I started the firm has been a money-making investment with one gigantic exception. That was Coursera. We've talked about that. But you know, listen, as much as I'm excited about the success we've had, I will also own the mistake that we've had as well. And so we work with all kinds of people and help them invest better. The thing that we focus on is trying to help you get better returns and reduce your risk, hedge your exposure. We're very good at helping people organize in that way. And so what we're doing is if you're interested, if you like this kind of analysis, if you think you might want to get better returns or understand the markets better, you can go to deepknowledgeinvesting.com, click on the subscribe now button. And we're offering Phil's listeners a coupon code. It is stocks 
for beginners 50. So stocks for beginners five zero, and you can get 50% off of an individual monthly subscription or an individual six month subscription. So if you want to do six months, we typically charge $200 with the Phil's coupon code, you can get a hundred dollars. And then my suggestion is take the hundred dollars you saved and then invest it in the market and hopefully start to earn better returns on that. That would be my plan. <laughs> it's always a good plan. Invest in the market. Gary Broad, thank you very much for joining me again today. Thanks so much, Phil. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. 